Let me do it. I realized I wanted to record myself. So now I'm going to record myself. Excellent. Do you want a microphone, or are you good? I, I think we're good. Okay. So yeah, this talk is called Free Time. And it's, it's, the subject matter is roughly about collaboration and working with people in groups. Uh, but we're going to get to a concept called the flywheel later. So that's why I had to throw the flywheel in the title. Uh, a friend of mine was helping me come up with the talk. He says, where does the flywheel come into it? And I said, OK, well, let's put it at the beginning. So when I hit you with it later, it won't be a total surprise. So in some ways, this is a talk about improv comedy. Uh, I, I can't see my screen. OK, there it is. Actually, this is a talk about how working with other people can make the world better. So we are going to talk about improvisers. We're going to talk about computer programmers. And we're also going to talk about communities and how communities encourage collaboration. And then finally, we're going to bring in the free time, because that's the name of the talk. And the fact that when you have a mission, every, every minute of your free time that you spend can matter. Um, so the first chapter is called Yes And. And this is the, the improv section. It's not about jokes, though. It's about the story. And for this part, we're going to have you sort of picture being in a theater and being up on a stage. You're about to watch an improv show. And there's one person on stage, Becky. And Becky, Becky's doing something. I was thinking about getting a volunteer, but if I got volunteers, then half of my audience would be gone. So Becky, Becky's doing one of these things, OK? So you're watching in the audience, like, what's, what does this mean? What is she doing? Do you, are you drawing any assumptions about what could be happening? Sweeping. She could be sweeping. All right, so then we're going to have another person enter from the other side, and he's going to watch her doing this, this thing. And he says, it looks like those little pieces of skull and bone aren't going to sweep themselves up. And then she's going to come back and say, pick up a broom. This is a bigger mess than we had back at Loch Ness last year. And just, just then, we've sort of set up a whole bunch of things that could happen in the next few minutes in the scene. But before they started, they, had, they didn't plan, OK, you start out, you're going to do a sweeping thing, and then I'm going to come in, and then I'm going to say the thing about sweeping and the alien skulls, and then you're going to throw the Loch Ness thing. They just made it all up on the spot. And what they're doing is a concept that, in improv, we call yes and. It's, it's really the, the foundation of any time you've ever seen somebody do improv comedy, they're doing this. Whether they would know the word for it or not, this is, what, this is what's going on. And the basic, the basic premise is, if I say something during an improv scene, it's real. That's the truth. So if I, if I say that those pieces of alien skull they're pieces of alien skull. Even if you can't see them, even if I don't know what an alien skull looks like, that's it. It's real. And your job as the person who's playing against me is to accept whatever I said as the truth and support it and use that to build the rest of the scene. And the really cool thing about this is that when you get to this point and you're, you're employing yes and, Everything is possible. Everything is real. And it just like opens up your brain. And when you get into the zone, the things are just flowing out. You're not thinking about what you're about to say. 
it's just obvious. You're just doing it, and you go, of course those are alien skull. Of course we were at Loch Ness. Of course this is happening. It just feels, feels right when you're up there on stage doing it. And this is, I think this is a really cool, um, pure expression of human creativity. And there, it always creates this like totally fertile playground. So just to go back and, and analyze this, what, what just happened, right? Becky was sweeping. And Richard comes in, and he acknowledges her sweeping when he says the word sweep. That's, like, that's where he's saying, yes, I understand you're sweeping. And then he has the and part, which is the alien skull, right? And then she says yes back to, thank you for acknowledging that I was sweeping by saying the word broom, right? But then she says, you lazy bum. So she's now establishing there's clearly a relationship between these two people. They're not just two strangers that have met on the street. And she's taking a high status. She's saying, I'm more important than you because I'm going to call you a bad name. And then she also says last year, which means that these two people have known each other for at least a year and that they were at Loch Ness at some point. So now we almost have this like X-Files, science fiction, something is about to happen. And hopefully all the people in the audience are going, okay, I'm paying attention. I want to know what's going to happen next, right? And everything else that happens, we've just set it up. You could have a million different stories just with those first three moments. Um, and nobody knows what's going to happen, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's fun. And, and right now I'm going to coin a phrase for you. This is what I see when, when there's two people and they're doing this the right way it creates what I'm going to call a virtuous circle. And we're going to bring that concept back a bunch of times. So here's the virtuous circle. We've got the sweeping. It's followed up by aliens. It's followed up by last year. So every time that we add a new piece of information, the circle keeps spinning, the momentum keeps building, comedy happens, right? Um, and each one of those little pieces of information is an offer. And so every time you make an offer and then you make another offer, the first offer becomes more valuable. So it, it, that's, that's how we get that momentum building. The opposite of saying yes and, if he were to say, stop moving your arms like that, we're fathoms beneath the ocean in scuba gear, that's basically saying like, you're doing this, I don't care. I have my own funny thing that I wanna say. And it might be funny for just a second, but what he's actually doing is, is blocking her offer of, hey, I'm, I'm trying to set something up here. He's not saying yes. He's not playing along. So again, it, it might be funny for a minute, but in the long term, he's just killed all the momentum of, now we're trying to set up this thing about aliens and going to Loch Ness and like, what, all of a sudden we're underwater? It doesn't make sense, right? And one of the you know, like classic examples of somebody doing something bad in improv, it's like, and then I pull out a gun. It's actually okay to pull out a gun in an improv scene, but it usually is such a left turn from whatever else was going on that... It's, it's, it's not saying yes. It's just like, I'm just going to throw in an extra thing that has nothing to do with anything else that's going on. So the goal is to acknowledge what your scene partner is doing and, and build on it. Okay. Basically, we're talking about this. Okay, so listening, listening is really key to making successful improv, and that's what we're talking about here. Saying yes, paying attention to your partner. And we see this idea, this virtuous circle, living in different places, and I'm going to talk about some more of those in, in modern culture, in computer programming, and in communities. And then also at this convention, right, by somebody having a talk, 
there's a way of me saying, hey, I have this idea. You guys came here. You're saying yes to my idea. Hopefully you tell your friends, hey, I saw this talk. This is cool. Now you're, that's, that's the sharing part. That's the yes, I'm, I, I acknowledge this. So you can say yes and to an idea. It doesn't have to just happen on stage. And pretty much every piece of communication is, is some form of yes and. I heard this thing. I want to tell it to you. I want to repeat it back to you. And then I want to talk about it. Um, so if, if I learn something, and I just, I'm the only person who has this knowledge, then what good is it? But if I share it with you, now we can use it. We, this, is, this is knowledge. We can do something cool with it. So there's a famous quote from Thomas Jefferson. He who receives an idea from me receives instruction himself without lessening mine. Just like if you're going to light a candle... What does he say? As he who lights his taper at mine receives light without darkening me, right? That, that candle fire spreads from one person to the other. The first candle still burns just as brightly. So knowledge works like that too. And when more ha people have an idea, it can become more valuable. So there's lots of different ways we can get information. You can travel. You can study with a mentor. You can read a book or, you know, um, some other, you can write a letter to somebody. And at one point in history, distance was a problem, right? Spread of information over vast distances was harder than to your neighbor. But your neighbor doesn't always care about the same things as you. And when we have more people in shorter you know, spans of distance, then it's really easy to have these virtuous circles where things are growing and momentum is building, as opposed to if I have to wait to write my letter for to get halfway across the world and wait for that person to write a response for it to get back here, that can, that can slow things down. And when we mo started moving into cities, then it got easier to collaborate on things and people started coming together more. So this is the moment where somebody got peanut butter in my chocolate, right? These two ideas that maybe didn't have a lot to do with each other, they were far away from each other, it was hard for them to bump into each other now, because we started living in bigger cities and congregating, we have ideas coming together. So there's a book written by a guy named Stephen Johnson. It's called Where Good Ideas Come From. And the whole book is about generating ideas and sort of like these people who have had these like genius moments in their life. That He says the trick to having good ideas is not to sit around in glorious isolation and think the big thoughts. The trick is to get more parts on the table. So... If you have an idea to share it with somebody, if you keep it to yourself, you're not really doing that idea you know, a real service. And some other fun things that he says in the book is to embrace serendipity, to follow the links, to frequent liquid networks, which you know, we've got the margarita machine over there, <laughs> uh, and to borrow and recycle and reinvent. So you know, uh, there's that saying where great artists steal. This is what he's, he's trying to encourage you to do. Um, so when we have people getting together in communities, there's great incubators of ideas because the more comfortable you feel in a community, the easier it is for you to share. You have that safe environment. You know, somebody's not going to make fun of you for telling someone, oh, I have this idea, I want to do this thing. So, you know, alien skulls, it's going to happen. It's going to be a big thing. And if you're not in a safe and supportive environment, then, you know, somebody could tell you, oh, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And then you're not going to tell that person the next time you have an idea. Maybe that idea is better. Maybe that idea builds on top of the first one. If you, if you feel safe, if you feel supported, 
in your community, then you're going to share ideas. Maybe they're going to share them back with you. And there are some communities that are devoted to learning, like universities. And people, anybody who's ever done uh, research at a university will tell you that the community that's there in the university was really, really critical to them being successful with the project, right? Um, we have other kinds of communication, you know, radio shows. You can broadcast to so many more people all at the same time and have that idea stay the same. Instead of, oh, I heard this thing on the radio the other day and you know, you don't really remember everything they said, but you can also, really cool thing about like a TV show or a radio program, you can get a direct quote from the person who actually had that idea. It's not third or fourth or fifth hand information. It's like, we have, we have this guy, we have him on tape, here he is, right? Um, and we've also got new ways of sharing information now, like the internet. So every time that the distance gets reduced, we get, it's easier to create these virtual circles. And every time that sharing gets easier by the media creating that platform for sharing to happen, it's also easier to create a virtuous circle. So computer networks and computer code, right, as, as tools, not as a thing that you just work on, these things are enabling other forms of communication. So you can share a PhD paper, you can share a picture of a cat. It doesn't really matter. The computer doesn't care what kind of information you're sharing. And something that I participate in is blogging and podcasting where I can talk about a subject that if I were to try to get a talk on the radio about some really you know, specific nerdy thing, like a board game podcast, which I listen to several of, there's not a lot of radio producers that are going to go like, yeah, board game show, we're going to put that on at you know, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, drive time. It's not going to happen. But on a podcast... I can record it myself, I can publish it myself, I can tell my friends about it, and they can, they can pick that up, and they can listen to it at 5 o'clock in the afternoon on their way home from work if they want to. Um, you've also got these big organizations, and the motto of TED, right, where they publish all these really great videos from their conference, ideas worth spreading. And just to sort of repeat the point, beat it over the head, you can learn something from a TED video, but sharing it is when you're saying, yes, I want to tell you about this. I want to share this idea. I want to discuss this with you. It's not just, hey, look at this cool thing. There's a guy that made a robot that swims. It's like, I want to talk about the guy that made the robot that swims. What else, could, what else is possible? If we've got swimming robots, now what can we do, right? So this is the point where you asked me the question, why, why are you trying to tell me to share? Why, why do you care so much? And it's because I think that, you know, in your daily life, in your work, in your play, maybe in your family, or in your, you know, passion projects, you can make, you can make things better. And that sort of moment where you're sharing things, that their things are just flowing out of your head, you're saying yes to everything, there's nothing wrong, everything's real. We have a word for that, it's called brainstorming, right? So... This is something that we practice. This is something that people bring into their lives, but I think I don't, I don't see always that like supportive, yes, sharing environment in every workplace. It's a little bit more, oh, well, you know, we can't do that because this is happening. And everybody's crossed their arms and everyone's asleep and everyone's looking down at their phone and checking their email. And there's not a lot of sharing going on there. And then you hear about a place like Google where, oh, yeah, it's such a creative place. Why is it a creative place? It's not because they have the coolest office and they have free lunch. It's because the people are supportive of each other. 
And uh, so listening, we're going to bring this back. Listening is important to sharing ideas and brainstorming. And uh, the key point here is, right, you can be listening even when it's not brainstorming time. And now we're going to take a little turn. Listening is not the only way to create something meaningful. Sometimes you need to be selfish and try to solve your own problem in order to have that new idea that to make a new thing. So we're going to talk about a concept called scratching your own itch, which is pretty self-explanatory. Um, and I'm going to talk about it from my perspective. I write code for a living, so I'm a computer programmer. But again, just like improv is not about jokes, computer programming is not really about code. It's about how you use it. It's about the features. It's about the functionality that you get out of it. And as a programmer, there's probably one thing that makes me a programmer and somebody you know, sitting in the audience, a non-programmer, is just that I believe I can write code. It's not really that I know how to do it all. It's just that if you ask me this question, then I say, yeah, I can solve that problem. Give it to me. I've got confidence enough to want to do it. And uh, it's also easier when you're trying to learn something new to solve something that's a little closer to home. So a lot of the you know, like more well-known uh, projects that involve code started out as a personal thing, right? Some guy wanted to buy Pez dispensers. Or maybe somebody wanted to communicate with his friends at Harvard. And specifically, like a college social networking is a project that I work on that's called Drupal. And there was actually this college student exactly 15 years ago today in a college town in Belgium. He decided he wanted to have a message board to talk with his friends at the college dorm. And he wanted to register a domain name that meant village, and he misspelled it, so he got a domain name that meant a drop of water instead. It's Flemish, so I'm not going to bore you with all the stuff, but that word then translated into English is Drupal, and now Drupal actually runs the website for the White House and the Weather Channel and for Britney Spears, and for you know, uh, Greenpeace, and for a bunch of sites for Fri Pfizer that I work on, and local theaters, and all kinds of websites all over the world, just because this guy wanted to communica communicate with his friends in his college dorm. So that one little selfish itch scratching can turn into something really big if you give it time to grow. And, uh, you know, like I said, the small problems are easier to solve because you kind of understand the whole problem. You don't have to have somebody sit there and explain everything to you or discover all the things that are hairy about it. You know that you have this problem and you're just like, I just want to fix this right now. I'm going to get into it. So um, that's, that's scratching your own itch. And I'm going to give an example now. Let's say I've got a record collection at home. And I want to know which, which records I've got, right? I've got vinyl records. They're sitting on the shelf. And there's about this many of them. Do I have a copy of Billy Joel's 52nd Street? I'm not sure. So I'm going to call my program MyTunes. Why not? And this is, this is just my program. I'm scratching my own itch. I don't need to build a music store. I just want to find my records and know which ones I have. So what sorts of things might that program do? You know, what's, what are the things that I would need to do just to organize my own personal record collection? Really, if you think about it, just three things. I need to collect the information about the records. I need to store it somewhere so I can 
retrieve it again, and I need to be able to view it some sort of organized way so that I know what I've got. I don't put in two, two things even that are duplicates, but maybe that's not even a feature that I need right away because I can just look at my list. It's, it's not that long. Maybe I could use a spreadsheet, but I know how to write code, so let me just write the code myself. But with these three features, this is, this is solving my problem. It's just enough for me to solve my problem. And when you have this sort of product that's, that just barely works, but it works, you, you have this moment where you now have a complete thing. And having a complete thing is way different than just having like three little individual pieces. You could almost, it's almost useful. It's, it's almost something that you'd want to share with somebody and show somebody else. So there's a word that we have for this in computer programming called the minimum viable product. And minimum viable product is essentially pushing the down arrow before the right arrow. Um, it's, the, it's the least complicated way of scratching your own itch. It's, it's understanding a problem completely enough that you say, the, the simplest way I could solve this problem is just to do this, this, and this. And all that other stuff, having a music store, even having album art, I don't care. I just want to do these three things really well. So uh, as a way of illustrating the minimum viable product, think about a wedding cake. What are all the things you have on a wedding cake? This is like audience interaction time. But there's a, it's like a small audience, so it's like I can get one thing from each of you. The topping, so like the icing. No, well, that, that's what they also came to, like the, the figurines. And, the and yeah, like the bride and groom on the top. Fondant. Different layers of cake, right? These giant, massive things. Or, if if you really think about, you know, what's the minimum viable product as applied to cake? Could we pull it off with a cupcake, right? You get the icing, you get the cake part, maybe you even stack them up in layers. I've actually seen wedding cakes that are cupcakes now because it's just easier to understand and you don't have to cut it, you just direct application of cake to mouth. I love it, right? Cupcakes are beautiful things. So I'm a big fan of, of things that just work. And there are certain things in life that just work. A cupcake is... Pretty much, if you take anything away from a cupcake, is it really a cake anymore? Right? So as another example, you guys remember the 1990s? We had virtual reality. And there was like these big, giant plastic things on your head. And you're walking on maybe like a treadmill and you're wearing like power gloves and sensors and like a full Kevlar bodysuit for some reason. There's video cameras pointed at you and bright lights. Or, have you ever seen one of these things? This is called the Google Cardboard. It is literally a piece of cardboard, two plastic lenses, and a magnet. And then you take your phone, and you put it in this box, and now you have virtual reality. This is definitely a minimum viable product. But the reason why this works, of course, is because the cell phones have become so advanced now, right? There was this enabling platform that allowed somebody to go, you know what? This is really great. And this other idea is cool. And if I just add a piece of cardboard to this, it now makes virtual reality. So sometimes you need that like big innovation to happen in one area. 
And for somebody to not understand all of the different ways you could use that in order to have the minimum viable product grow up, right? The internet has enabled so many different kinds of inter- minimum viable products. Um, I'm sure that, you know, 100 years ago when we had radio communication and telephones and telegraphs and television, there were all kinds of new things being invented in that sort of like early days of when there's all this new stuff. And now, you know, what's really new with television? Not very much, right? So we kind of understand a lot of the things you could do with it, but then people sort of, they start, then they start playing with the form. They start playing with the creative parts of it, and they start saying, okay, well, now we could have TV shows that last, you know, over several years and one continuous story instead of just playing around with different things you could do on television. Now we're playing with the medium itself instead of with the technology part of it, right? So there's sort of different phases of when innovation happens. Um, and just, again, to, to beat this thing to death, we talk about my, my MyTunes example. Let's say I've got a friend named Damien, and he also wants to organize his records. So I've written my code, but I can also share that code with him, right? And he could organize his records in the same way. But he might be a little confused. What do you mean this program only does three things? Are you crazy? That's all it does? Does it even alphabetize the records? No, not really. Can you make a playlist out of it if we're going to have a party? No, not, not, not really, not right now. But he can give me that feedback. And every time he asks me a question, I can make a note there, and I can make a new feature. So the, each new feature, if I make a change, I could give him a copy of the code again. Now we both have that new feature. That's pretty cool because computers allow us to make infinite copies of everything there's this way of having something written in code means that every time you add a new feature to something in code, everybody benefits. So you have that cycle between the programmer and the user, back to the programmer, back to the user. That's Darth Vader's famous phrase right there. It's, that's a virtuous circle too, right? So in software... Right? We talked about ideas being able to be shared. We talked about in improv, offers are able to be shared. The features are kind of like the ideas of software. Every time I add a new thing, it's sort of like me saying, hey, here's this thing, let me share it with you. I've added to the minimum viable product in some way. Now I can share that with all of the users all at once. And then they can share their feedback with me and we can make the product better together. And so that's sort of like a mutation of the virtuous circle that we call the feedback loop between my, me and the users. And every time, every time that happens, that's also me saying, yes, and I heard your, I heard your suggestion for a feature. I'm going to say yes to that. I'm going to give it back to you. And so we can have that dialogue. And if you don't have a healthy feedback loop, you're not going to get new users. If you don't get new users, you can't get new ideas. And you can't get the same speed and the same level of innovation happening. So you want, you want this feedback to be happening. You want to have that sort of healthy cycle with people. And some people will say, oh, well, there's companies, they don't take very much feedback. They may not be very transparent about it, but every company is doing this. 
Um, one big difference between code and improv is that when I'm writing a piece of code, I have the undo button. So if I release a new feature, it turns out that it was terrible or it deleted all of your records, it's okay, we can undo it, right? It's one, one of the nice things about this model over doing something on stage. On stage, you kind of get one shot at it. So if one programmer who's listening and being an active participant can do something that amazing, what happens if we get two programmers and put them together? And this is where we're going to start to talk about the flywheel. Um, so, so we talked about me and my friend Damien. What if Damien is also a programmer? Then we can actually work on something and make it even bigger, even better, even faster, right? So he could create a program that's supportive of my program, and now we have, maybe we have the, the thing that organizes all your album art or the music store, or maybe he has that party playlist feature, you know? And every time that he makes a product that is supportive of my product, that's now a totally new separate product, right? He could release a new version of his plugin independent of me releasing a new version of the program. So that plugin is basically its own little miniature piece of software, its own little product with its own feedback loop. And when you take those two feedback loops and you put them together, then it makes something even greater. And that's when we get the flywheel effect, is this circle spinning and that circle spinning, and they're just supporting each other and everything's happy. Uh, so a little bit more about improv. We have a, a form in improv that we call the herald, and it's a really good example of, of a flywheel. So it's essentially it's a three-act improvised play. Again, nobody knows what's going to happen at the end of the play when we come out on stage, but we get, you give us like 30, 40 minutes, and we will create a whole entire play with characters, a beginning, a middle, and an end right there on stage for you. So the basic way it works, in Act 1, you have a scene, got a couple characters in it, you got another scene with a couple characters in it, and a third scene. Usually it's three. Things tend to work really well in threes. And then that's your first like cycle of it. And you go through Act 2, again, scene A, scene B, and scene C, and in Act 3 with another set of three. And by the end of this, it usually takes a little over half an hour if you're doing it the normal way. You get this really rich story, and it, it never really fails to be amazing that people watch this and they think, oh, you must have written some of it. Oh, you guys must have been like talking in the back. But I've seen it happen with just two actors, and they're able to create this entire hour of entertainment that is really, it's, it's almost unbelievable what these two people can do when they're really in the zone. So just like we had Im offers in improv, each offer sort of is supported by the other offers. Now we can talk about it on the scene level. Each scene is supported by the other scenes, and each of the acts in the Herald, each of those, those part one, part two, and part three of the story are all supported by each other. And that's what creates that, that flywheel, that momentum. And we can also talk about um, people and their, their actions can be supported by other people's actions, right? Outside, outside of the stage, outside of computer programs, Anything that, that you do in support of me, we can, we can be in support of each other. So every time that people get more connected, right, where we have more stuff in common, it's easier to collaborate on stuff. 
And so we have um, coming up some examples of things you can do in communities. And sometimes it's an event that really kicks things off. Like this guy decides he's going to publish his little script that he made in his college dorm room. You might have heard of it. It's called Linux. Maybe runs most of the computer servers in the world now. It runs on this thingy right here. It's running, you know, this laptop. Um, it's kind of a big deal. And it all really just started from this guy saying, oh, I've got this project. It's, it's kind of like this, but it's really not that good. And now it's like almost 20, 25 years later, and it's everywhere, right? Um, we talked about podcasting a little bit. There's, there's a really neat um, concept, too. Has anybody ever heard of a bar camp? So the basic idea is you get a whole group of people together and you start out similar to like we would in an improv scene, right? There's no schedule. There's no specific thing that we're going to talk about today. But if you want to talk about, you know, candy and she wants to talk about hamsters and you want to talk about, you know, new iPhones and you want to talk about virtual reality and I want to talk about telling jokes, everybody sort of gets their own chance to talk about a subject we split up, let's say we've got, you know, four hours worth of time, and there's five of us, maybe everybody gets 45 minutes. Like, I'm going to be the discussion leader for the next 45 minutes, right? I'm going to hold the stick. I'm, I'm the discussion leader for now, but then I'm going to give up my time and give it to the next person. And in a, in a bar camp setting, you can actually use this format to create a conference where there's no keynote speaker, there's no most important person but you still learn a lot of interesting stuff and you still have a lot of really great conversations. And it doesn't sound like it would work until you do it. And then you realize that it's awesome. Um, similar to Bar Camp, yeah, there's these other sorts of community-run events related to Drupal that I do. We have a similar format. We get together. We only talk about this subject all day long. But then sometimes there's an idea that comes out of one of those little discussions and we say, you know, we should share this with more people than just the people in this room. It gets bigger, you know, it goes on. And then we take it to a real important big conference. And that now, now I'm sharing this with a room with thousands of people in it and just, instead of just a few people. Um, has anybody ever been to the Fringe Festival, theater festival? So at a Fringe Festival, right, anybody can put on a show. But they have this really great thing in Canada They've got eight different fringe festivals. And every two weeks throughout the summer, they have another one that starts. So you can actually apply, if you're a theater producer, to one festival, but you actually get into all eight of them. So you can go on the whole entire tour. And every place you go, you're supported by the other artists, you're supported by the community, the newspaper guy writes a review for you, and then you go to the next city, and you use all the things you learn from that first festival now do the second festival and the third festival and the so by the time you get to the end of the summer you've polished your show and you've learned so many things and hopefully you've made a couple of dollars supporting art and, and you've had this amazing summer and you go on tour um, but there's that organization that sets up all the festivals and coordinates them to enable that creativity to happen um, co-working is a really similar kind of example there's a bunch of people, they all realize, like, I work from home, you work from home. You know what? Instead of working from home, maybe we should just, like, rent an office together, and we can all work out of that space. And then if I'm having a problem with something, or maybe, 
you know, I, I need somebody to, to watch my computer while I go get a cup of coffee, we're, we're sharing resources, we're supporting each other, right? Um, this happens at farmer's markets too, right? If, if I go directly to the farm, I go down to Lake Meadows Farm and I get a chicken from them, that's, that's great. And it's a delicious chicken and it, you know, is a, is a nice product. But I, if, if they bring their stuff to the farmer's market, now that this guy's selling the chickens and that guy's selling the bread and this person's selling the vegetables and that person's selling the thing to dip the bread in and that guy's got the beer and this lady's got the honey and they're all next to each other. It's, it's really convenient, but I'm still supporting those individual growers. By, by pooling their resources, they've actually made something that's way more valuable to themselves and to me as the customer. Have you guys ever heard of 48-hour film festivals? So at the beginning of the weekend, maybe you bring a team of people with you or maybe you're sort of paired up with people, you know, ad hoc at the beginning of the weekend and you're given sort of like a premise, like everyone's going to make a Star Wars movie or everyone's going to make a horror movie or everyone has to make a movie that has one of these in it, whatever this is, right? It's got a cucumber in it. Okay, everyone go. And you're going to get... 10 completely different movies back because different people are working on them with different experiences. But the whole point is that there are certain things that's really, really hard to complete. A film is one of them. That, that whole process of writing a film and casting it and shooting it and editing it and producing it and then showing it to people, that's this humongous process that can take years. So let's try to compress all of those steps down into one weekend and let's get these people to work together. And now, how many films have you ever made in your life? If your answer before the weekend was zero, now your answer is one. And getting from that zero to that one is such a huge hurdle to step over that this doesn't just exist in the, in the land of film. We've got them for video games as well. Um, I've heard of them being done for startup companies too, which is a thing they call the startup weekend. And it might be people that have never met each other before. And now by the end of the weekend, they're planning on working together for the next couple of months. There's actually usually some prize money involved. So it's like, I'll fund your company for $10,000. Like kind of like similar to how they would do on Shark Tank. And these people at the end of the weekend, I've got $10,000 worth of funding. I can now take this idea and go somewhere with it. Um, and we talked about TED a little bit before. And TED actually has their own little farm league of TEDx events. Uh, something I think is really, really interesting at Kickstarter, right? Some, some projects at Kickstarter are a little bit successful. And then other projects at Kickstarter are like gigantically successful and they make $10 million in the first week. And some of those projects that have made so much money, they're like, we love all this goodwill, but what do, what do we do with all this money now? They, they actually fund other Kickstarter projects with the profits from their own Kickstarter project, and they call it kicking it forward. So all these healthy communities, they're all based on healthy feedback loops. And listening, again, is really important here. Um, and the flywheel effects can also start when you're scratching your own itch and you share it, right? And you might ask me, you know, all these people are, are just working on these things. They're just doing it just for fun. How are they creating so much value? 
They start out as passion projects. They're just scratching their own itch. They're working on these things in their free time. Uh, there's, a, there's another book that I have read and really enjoy by a guy called Clay Shirky, and he talks about the, our cognitive surplus in our modern society and what people are doing with their free time now. And he basically says, you know, when we moved into big cities, people started specializing. You didn't have to take care of your whole house anymore. You're just caring for your little apartment. Somebody else is worrying about, you know, how the power is getting into your house and how you're heating and cooling it. You know, plugging all the leaks in your roof. All I've got to do is just go to work and come home. Now I have all this free time. What do I do with it all? And for a little while, all we did was watch television. And lately, now that we've got you know, the internet and these new communities, we're figuring out new things that we can do with our free time if we want to. Um, so one of his quotes is, diverting even a tiny fraction of time from consumption to participation can create enormous positive effects. If, if you just think about only the people that are connected to the internet, it's a little over a billion people right now. And if all of those billion people could work on some productive thing for a minute every day, a billion minutes, I think, is several thousand years. I haven't done the math, but it's a long, long time. It's, there's a lot of value that can be created by people working on things in their free time. If you think about some of these products, there's Yelp or Amazon. If people didn't write reviews on Yelp and Amazon, they wouldn't be useful. Um, things like meetup.com or you know, any sort of site where you're meeting up people in, in person, like OkCupid, if there weren't other users there writing their profiles and sort of sharing things about themselves, they wouldn't, that, that company wouldn't exist. And if nobody ever shared any of their photos on Flickr, what, what fun would it be? I've got a place to organize my own photos, but what about your photos? If I can't see them, it doesn't have that same effect. Um, and each one of these posts, each one of those little reviews or one of those little profiles, it's in my, in my brain, it's the same thing as making an offer in improv. It's the same thing as that sweeping up that alien skull. It's, it's something that I can share and I can say yes to. And each, if each one of those is an investment of time, you don't have to invest 10 years of your life. You can invest one minute at a time. You can invest 10 seconds at a time. But again, over the course of you know, billions of people, now we're talking about big, big changes. But you might also ask, you know, why, why do I want to help this company? Somebody's actually said in the past, if you're not paying for it, then you're not a customer, you're a product. And I think, if you're not paying for it, you're not a customer, you're a contributor. It doesn't have to be a bad thing to not get paid for something. Uh, Jane McGonigal in her book, Reality is Broken, she said the opposite of work is not play, it's depression. So yeah, um, would the world be getting any better if you only did things that you got paid for? So uh, that's, that's kind of what this, the ultimate point here is, let's make the world a better place. Right? All of these new things can, can really help us move out of the industrial era into whatever it is we're going into next. Uh, Stuart Brand, who is the author of The Whole Earth Catalog, this is a quote by him. It says, The forces in play in the Earth system are astronomically massive and unimaginably complex. Our participation has to be subtle and tentative. 
and then cumulative in a stabilizing direction. So he, he talks about experimenting, right? Maybe making a minimum viable product for making the world a better place before you do it on that massive scale. So your efforts, one person can really make a difference. And people now talk about the millennials, what's going on with them, right? The next generation, oh, they, they don't hold on to jobs for longer than six months. They don't know what they're doing. All they want is a trophy and a gold star for everything. But I don't think that's... Everyone sees it as, as a problem because they're different. But I see it that they're experimenting with the world. They only have a job for six months because they're trying out this thing, they're trying out that thing. They want to know where they're going to be the most effective, right? And they want to be treated like a valid contributor. They don't want to be treated like some kid. They, they say, my contribution is just as valid as your contribution. Just because I have less experience, all it means is that I have a different perspective. It doesn't mean that I can't be a participant here. And so, um, more quotes. This is from a book called Wikinomics. It says, a tough new rule is emerging. Harness the new collaboration or perish. So, uh, there's different ways of sharing information, right? In the old school, we had a phone tree. If there was a disaster, I would call two friends, and then they would call two friends, and they would call two friends, and then everybody would know about, oh, the school's closed today, or you know, uh, something maybe even possibly much worse. And that worked out just fine. But now there are other tools, or maybe there, you're in a situation where not everyone has a phone, but you still have to have a way of getting that information to everyone. So in Africa, during a civil crisis, they actually invented a tool they call Ushahidi, and it lets you take some of these pieces of information that one person can share with me, the guy who has a computer, and it might not be useful to everyone, but because I've got a computer and the guy over there has a computer, the two of us now have sort of random access to all this information instead of just a, a, a first-hand account from one person and we can store it on a map, maybe we could keep it in a wiki, we're, we're collaborating on keeping all that information up to date. So this situation in Kenya, there was an election, there were fires going on, there were people being shot, um, all sorts of other really terrible atrocities were going on, but this group of guys with computers banded together, and they were able to steer people away. Don't go near this city, it's not safe. You know, stay where you are, route yourself around this area and now a lot of universities and public institutions have actually set up this tool that they built at the time it's called Yushahidi and it means witness and they, they use it at a lot of college campuses when there's sort of a disaster on campus, there's a bomb threat or something, that they can replace the homepage of the university with a, a Yushahidi page and the people who are empowered to update the information can do so really quickly and it's designed to show you things on a map so that everyone can understand what's going on really easily. Um, another example of old thing that's been changed into a new thing by internet communications, if you think about Lego, right, you can create anything you want, but you sort of had to do it with all the people that were in the room with you. Now we have something called Minecraft as a video game. It's a similar kind of a creative aspect as Lego, except for people are playing over the internet with people they've never met. Maybe they don't even speak their own language. 
And obviously, um, encyclopedias, we used to get encyclopedias once a year, but maybe in your household, you might not get a new set of encyclopedias more than once in your lifetime. So whatever information they created, that was it. It was frozen in time. Now we have Wikipedia, and it gets updated maybe sometimes several times in an hour. And it's translated into every language in the world. Um, and there's, there's another thing that's ri- risen out of this when you start thinking about all these things people are doing in their free time is that collaboration can be thought of as a skill. If I'm good or bad at working with others. And it's something that you can strengthen if you do it over and over again. Uh, if you've ever heard of the Malcolm Gladwell book, Outliers, he, he brings up this magic number that after you've done something for 10,000 hours, you become an expert at it. So one thing that I've noticed that our generation is creating, you know, with all these different social media sharing tools and, and you know, posting these little tiny pieces here and there and creating value all over the places, we've got now millions and millions of experts at collaborating on stuff. And all they really need is something to collaborate on. If, they, if you gave them something that they cared about, that they wanted to work on, it could be a really powerful thing. So anyway, um, that's pretty much it. It basically the, the message is, how are you going to be spending your free time? I, could, I have five more slides, but it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening for 40 minutes. No, it's our wife. Um, I really enjoyed it. And I really like to come to these months of events because new ideas and different ways of thinking. This is classic. This is why I come to these things. Thanks, man. So I really enjoyed it. Thank you. If you if you want my bibliography, I've got all that in here. <laughs> If you really are really interested in one of these topics, I can tell you the name of the book I got the idea out of. Thank you. It was really interesting. Oh, thanks.